0: Hi, welcome again to Myth Magic Medicine with me, Denise here. And my guest today is Srikanth Mahankali, who is from India and is a radiologist. So, welcome, Sri. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hi, Denise. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And um, it's great to be here. And I love the fact that you got my first and last name right. In the first
2: one. You were late for sure, yeah. some thought. So
0: So let's, let's start very briefly, why you, you were raised in, you were born and raised in Hyderabad? Yes, I did. And you went to school there too, you went to medical school there? Correct. Okay. And since obviously we've talked before, I know that you were a fully trained radiologist and practicing radiologist in India before you came to the U.S., but you didn't expect to stay in the U.S., What did you originally expect to be doing when you came here, and what did you did initially when you came here?
1: (laughs) So after I finished radiology, I was with a a franchisee of a tertiary care hospital and had Mm -hmm. been there for uh, some time, uh, uh, almost like a year. Uh, When I began to hear that uh, this tertiary care uh, institute, the parent one, was was looking to expand their neuroradiology division. I was also someone who was always interested in neuroradiology and particularly neuro at the intersection of MR. Mm-hmm. Uh, while I trained at one of the top-notch institutions at that time, um, there were limits to how much I could learn on the neuro-MR front. So when I became aware that there was an opportunity to get some additional training and this tertiary care uh, institute was also, it was a corporate hospital, was also looking for um, some trained people to expand their neuroradiology division. Mm-hmm. Uh, I decided to come to the US to get some additional training.
0: Was that your first choice? She says as an English woman.
1: <laughs> my, my first choice was initially to go to UK, to be honest because the tertiary care institute where I did my radiology training was one of the overseas uh, training centers for the fellowship of the Royal College of Radiologists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the original plan always was to go to UK, do the FRCR, as it is called, and then come back um, uh, to India, because I'm the eldest son in my family. We mm-hmm. are twins, but I'm older by about 13 minutes. And culturally, um, the eldest son in our uh, hindu culture typically is the one who's responsible for parents at the old age uh, and then the fact that i was a physician and also the fact that my wife is a physician and and is also the eldest in her family uh, kind of the plan was for us to come back yeah. and basically take care of our parents and practice in india mm-hmm.
0: but things were not to be you chose instead to come to the us <laughs> Correct <laughs> so you came on a j1 visa, so it was you were expecting just to be here, get some training, and then go home where Where did you land?
1: So I first uh, um, came to the Health Science Center in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, the neuroradiology fellowship program there was under the ambit of a world-famous uh, spine radiologist um, so, I came there initially to get one year's worth of training in in, uh, uh, neuroradiology and then fundamentally head back home. That was the original plan. Uh, Part of the plan was also for my wife and son to be, my three-year-old son at that time to be in India while I finished this one-year training because I was going to be going back uh, to India at the end of that one-year training. That was the plan. (laughs) But three months after I got here, my wife and uh, three-year-old son showed up. Um, And and that basically kind of fundamentally altered the plan because my wife is also a physician who had just finished medical school at that time um, and had taken care of my son for those first couple of years. And so she had career aspirations as well. Hmm. And so when she showed up in San Antonio and then one thing led to another and here we are.
0: <laughs> so, how much training did you yourself do while you were there? Because I assume she was also on a J one.
1: Well, when we first got here, I had already done my medical school and radiology training in India. So I was mm-hmm. coming here to do some subspeciality training in neuroimaging.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas she had finished her medical school, and then upon the birth of her child, had taken a couple of years off.
2: Sure,
1: and then came here So
0: to the she was US. able to, she was tagged onto your visa?
1: Correct. Did,
0: so, but did, so, give that, her, did that give her permission to work?
1: The original uh, portion of it was, I was on J1 and she came in on what is called as the J2. Mm-hmm. But within the J2 or what's called the dependent visa, which she and my son were on, uh, there's an opportunity to do something called an EAD, an Employment Authorization Document. And, and basically what the employment authorization document does, especially if one is a, a skilled professional like my wife was, mm-hmm. um, is give them the opportunity to work in the U.S. And one of the, the tax that's usually taken, especially if the dependent also happens to be a skilled professional, is that uh, one income is not enough for a growing family of three, number one. And number two, uh, as a skilled professional, I would also like to use the opportunity for my being here in the U.S. to develop my uh, skill sets, contribute to the family income. And therefore, with that increased income, uh, it would provide us the opportunity to explore the social and cultural milieu of the U.S.
0: That's good. It gave you a little wiggle room. And in addition, she was, of course, she was probably an intern and that didn't give her a lot of time for sleep and all the other things but you do get some vacations so hopefully you got some travel in there um and then you spent how long in in san antonio
1: i was there in san antonio for four years while we were trying to resolve my immigration status uh the j1s typically offered for seven years Uh, at that time it all it used to be offered all at one shot for seven years mm-hmm. uh, and as long as it's contingent on finding an employer uh, who will sponsor the j1 mm-hmm. uh, but part of the deal with the j1 is that it affords a, a lot of control to your employer um, uh, to decide your next professional or for that matter even a person
0: so does the h1 <laughs> to be honest there's a lot of control too <laughs> um okay so so you spent you got your training that you wanted your wife completed her residency there also
1: no while we were in san antonio my wife was basically um, in a more supportive role while i was trying to straighten out our affairs Mm -hmm. Um, she began working on the employment authorization document as a j2 Mm -hmm. Uh, she had the opportunity to get her own j1 but The uh, legal advice at that point was not to open a second Mm -hmm. flank because once you get on the J-1 track, then you'll have to get what is called as a J-1 waiver before you can move Mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we tried to keep it within one J-1, but then had the J-2, which was my wife, with her own employment authorization document that allowed her to work and and improve upon her uh, skill sets. So Mm -hmm. that was the first four years in, in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of those uh, four years, I had an opportunity to join MD Anderson as a as a faculty instructor. Uh, but this time, I went in there on an O-1 visa. Uh, um, in fact, by the end of my four years in San Antonio, I had moved from J-1 to O-1, which gave which me we've, a...
0: Bit- we have missed out one very important thing. We must just, as a, Let's be uh, honest and, uh, and transparent about this. I managed to tape an entire hour without hitting record. So I know a lot of the story already, and you're a, you, the listeners are now going to benefit from that knowledge. You must talk about Harvard before you move on, because yes, you did, sir. yeah.
1: So in around, so part of my work uh, in San Antonio and in training involved a lot of research, and it was all neuroscience focused uh, by choice. Um, And also there was a heavy emphasis on MRI and particularly on functional MRI. So I had the opportunity to work with some of the leading people in those fields at that time. Uh, And functional MRI was a technique that had just uh, kind of become, um, what to say, mainstream in 1991. Mm -hmm. Um, So as well within the seven or eight year timeframe, when I learned about the functional MRI technique and it's... Uh, both its clinical and research applications. Um, And so in 2000, uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at Harvard was uh, starting a 3T MRI program uh, with people who were at the intersection of uh, uh, neuro and MR and especially advanced MR. So I was uh, fortunate enough to be an attractive candidate to an entity like Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And they had this six-year combo program where two years were uh, part of a National Cancer Institute, Cancer Radiology Fellowship, uh, which was followed by a four-year residency in radiology. And they had several graduates who had made that uh, transition and done successfully and done well. Uh, And therefore, when I applied, I was offered this position, but my handicap was uh, that I didn't have the green card.
0: It required citizenship or permanent residency, so you weren't
1: able to do it. The NCI Cancer Radiology Fellowship, the way it was funded was uh, you had to have either of those to receive your uh, stipend, Mm -hmm. Uh, even though it was a training grant, and without the green card, I couldn't begin that position.
0: So tell us the sad story, because this hurts me too, although I don't particularly like the weather in Massachusetts. It's a lovely state, and it's got a lot of fine institutions up there <laughs> so, so tell me tell me the sad story
1: the, so the 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 reality of it was that this position was a two yearly um, intake of two fellows mm-hmm. so when i was first offered the position in 2000 i didn't have the green card or the permanent residency as it's called so harvard uh, basically said no problem our next intake is in july 2002 and we're still interested in you. And so they wrote a letter to the INS on my behalf. Uh, basically, the vice chair of the department and my would-be mentor wrote letters to the INS uh, saying that my work in the US up to that point and my future work should I join that six-year program uh, was critical to the health economy and welfare of the people of the United States. It was a special category called the National Interest Waiver. Mm -hmm. Only the top 1% of applicants receive approval for that National Interest Waiver. And I was one of the fortunate people to receive that approval. The only problem is that the last step in the green card process is an FBI background check. And I was within about six months of having all of that and my green card in place when September 11th happened. Uh, And the second intake after my first one, which I couldn't make, was in July 2002. And um, at that time, the FBI obviously had matters of grave um, import, including national security. And so even when Harvard came back in July 2002, I did not have the green card, and I unfortunately couldn't join that position.
0: Okay. But that that designation, the O01 was still available to you. Did you Yes. You, yes. yes.
1: So I was already uh-huh. on the O01 when I was at the Health Science Center in the last stages mm-hmm. And so I was basically able to transition that O01 and transfer it to the MD Anderson Cancer Center and begin a faculty appointment in the division of Diagnostic Imaging in March 2001. Uh, The one rookie mistake uh, that I mentioned previously to you was that I told um, uh, the folks at MD Anderson that I had this Harvard position that I couldn't join in 2000, that Mm -hmm. I couldn't also join in 2002, and potentially there's an option to join it in 2004, Uh, and so therefore um, that was on the back burner. And so what could easily have been an assistant professor position to start with at MD Anderson instead wound up as a faculty instructor position.
0: Pro tip, I, don't tip your hand, Tell keep keep things back. <laughs>
1: so, so I learned the hard way that um, well, there was a price to pay for honesty, but I have no regrets because I felt that that was the right thing to do. And so that's what mm-hmm. I
0: did. Yeah. So where was the next move for you? What did you start doing after that?
1: Two years so at Anderson. I at Anderson. Uh, it, it was a great and enriching experience, and I was doing all the wonderful things that I ever wanted to do in academics, uh, particularly at the intersection of uh, the neurosciences and all of these advanced MR techniques. My basic interest has always been in cognitive neuroscience. Uh, and then when I... Went to MD Anderson, I was fortunate to be able to add a neuro-oncology aspect to it, which I found fascinating. I had a grandmother who died of uh, cervical cancer several years ago before I came to the U.S. So Mm -hmm. cancer was something that I was always very familiar with and interested in. And so I was fortunate to find this intersection of the neurosciences with oncology and so therefore be involved with neuro-oncology on one side. And then to be able to apply some of the MR techniques and especially the functional MRI techniques uh, at MD Anderson was a very rewarding and enriching experience. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the clinical work that I did in um, MD Anderson, especially using the functional MRI technique was basically to provide uh, neurosurgeons a roadmap of where the motor and sensory centers were when they went in to do surgery on patients with either primary or secondary brain tumors. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And basically what this technique would do would allow them to know where the speech centers are and the motor centers are, and therefore plan their surgery, their access, and also be potentially in a position to avoid post-operative morbidity and mortality. So Mm -hmm. it was a very satisfying and very, what to say, state-of-the-art Work and I also was fortunate that my mentor, uh, the late Dr. Edward Jackson, uh, was one of the top notch authorities in the field of MR. Um, very affable, very humble, highly skilled, and highly learned person uh, who tragically, a couple of years ago, actually passed off um, with a brain tumor, a glioblastoma. Areas of work that we had been doing while we were together at MDS. Yeah. So, so life was good. My son progressed through high school. My wife had finished her residency. Everything was good. Life was going on. Son got admitted to UT Austin into a, a, and started doing a double major, initially in electrical engineering. And then also in a liberal arts honors program called Plan 2, a very prestigious program. Mm -hmm. at the time the global intake in that program was 65 people that's it Mm -hmm. Uh, and the acceptance rate was very low and everything was good and he had plans to go into IP law and do have nothing to do with medicine Uh, but he came down with a health issue uh, a back issue that required a lot of um, focus uh, from my wife and me and And um, required a lot of, um, what to say, um, physical therapy, rehab, Mm -hmm. multiple surgeries. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: So while we were in Houston, um, we had to make a choice between one of us being available to him full time. Yeah. And so so I decided that I had done a fair amount of work and had reached a certain point in my life uh, where I could be the one who could take that time off to tend to our son mm-hmm. and still be potentially in a position to come back once right. this problem was resolved. Sure.
0: You had a track record to lean on. To. Um, but, so so you you took sort of mini sabbatical? Did you
1: well the original plan was for it to be a mini sabbatical because we didn't anticipate how long it would take mm. for my my son to kind of recover and be on his way. Uh, it took a while. Mm-hmm. It took it much longer than what we initially anticipated. In the interim, what happened was he had to be in and out of school a number of times. Mm-hmm. So, what was originally going to be a five year graduation uh, plan eventually turned out to be much beyond the five years. Yeah. He also had to let go of his uh, electrical engineering and plan to honors. Mm-hmm. and eventually graduated with a major in uh, uh, government and a minor in East Asian Studies. Mm-hmm. So, so his career and life uh, from a professional standpoint took a pivot. In the meanwhile, my wife made uh, good progress in the VA system that she was a part of. Um, and she had to move a couple of times, once to Indianapolis and once to Muscogee. And here I was within all of that trying to Sort out my uh, professional affairs. But what it also did was give me the opportunity then to uh, reimagine uh, my life and and my career in a different sort of way and look for roles that were not traditional. While I was never direct patient care uh, because of my radiology background, I had never really given serious thought to doing things that were fundamentally of a very non-clinical nature.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: But then the opportunity to be with my son and take care of him and then also have some time to myself allowed me to make some very important pivots that currently were actually proving to be very valuable and (laughs) super interesting too. So the first thing I did was I did something called the credential of readiness from Harvard Business School, Mm -hmm. which was basically their in-house MBA, pre-MBA program. Because when, okay. when they put their MBA class together, what they realized is that they had people at various levels of training and expertise when they joined the MBA. And so there was some need for a boot camp of sorts to bring everybody up yeah. to a certain level and, uh, to a mm-hmm. same platform before they joined the MBA uh, class. So they had this pre-MBA coursework, which eventually they transitioned and monetized into a program called the Credential of Readiness. Um, or core, uh, and basically that involved uh, uh, financial accounting, business analytics, and economics for managers. So I first took that program as a way to test the waters and
2: kind mm-hmm. of learn
1: something new. And then from there, I I transitioned into another program, which was basically a global health radiology program. Uh, with an entity based in Maryland called RadAid International, a non that was doing a lot of global health radiology work. Uh, WHO had released a report in 2015, which said that two-thirds of the world didn't have access to even basic imaging mm-hmm. resources, like a chest X-ray or a, an ultrasound, things that we all take for granted in developed countries like the U.S. and several other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So that got me thinking And I realized there was an opportunity now as a radiology to take that to the next level and get involved with global health radiology. Soon I became aware of global health as a whole. So I began an affiliation with an entity, uh, the largest global health consortium on the planet based in Washington DC, with whom I still have an ongoing affiliation from 2019. Mm -hmm. I serve on several committees and subcommittees with them in roles that involve advocacy, um, service, um, educational competencies, and research. I also have some abstract advising and mentor roles, some of which I uh, um, have ongoing currently at this point as we speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I also became aware that contrary to my earlier impression of what global health involved, uh, and my very preliminary knowledge about global health, there's a lot to it.
0: Yep. If you, to haven't, if you haven't got a house, it's really hard to think about all the other things. There's, it's, it's, everything it's, is medicine. Everything, is
1: <laughs> <involved>. everything <laughs> yeah. from urban planning, water, yeah. sanitation, forestation, climate change, big data, AI, refugees, social justice, you name yeah. it, it's a lot of global health.
2: Yes
0: medicine the everything specialty so so are you still in that sort of um lots of different pivots is that your focus are are those all your do you have your own llc i think you said have your own consulting service
1: yeah so at this point i have my own llc it's called uh, shri advisory and consulting which is basically a, a, a vehicle for me to use all my experiences in various domains, uh, starting with AI and digital and connected health, um, also medical imaging, global health, global health radiology. In 2021, I was fortunate to be a semi-finalist alternate uh, for something called the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Science and Technology Policy Fellowship based in Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. I was a semi-finalist alternate and couldn't make it past that, but it was a great learning experience because around that time, and I still do, I'm involved with an entity called the National Science Policy Network, Mm -hmm. which is fundamentally uh, uh, people in their early stages of uh, career, but they also have an allied membership option. Uh, where people who are a little more seasoned, been there, done that in different fields can get involved. And so I had the opportunity to be involved with it um, and have always had an interest in the science and technology policy domain. Um, Also did some formal coursework in the science and uh, technology policy domain. So I have an understanding of the American government, the Mm -hmm. federal budget, how the appropriations are done, how Congress decides on who gets what dollars. So it's Mm -hmm. it's very fascinating. And some of it, because it came through the global health domain, allows me to understand how the NIH receives its funds, the CDC, the Fogarty International Center. So it's at a macro level that all of these things are happening. And here as a clinician, here I was just doing my thing in a a small cubbyhole. So I've always wanted to be someone involved in that in that macro space Less- and, yeah, and get an understanding of how all of this plays.
0: If you had stayed in India, had you stayed in India, would you have had any of those opportunities? Obviously they would be Indian versions of the same thing or maybe World Health Organization, but would any of those things been possible?
1: I don't know what the current state of the art in India is, but certainly at the time that I was in India, in the Indian system, first thing is there was a, there's a uh, there was an aspect of the mindset involved at all mm-hmm. first thing and that is that traditionally if you you went you had clinical training clinical stuff even indirect patient care like radiology that is all you did there mm-hmm. was no there was no vision of what else you could do with that training because one of the things that i like to highlight whenever i speak to physicians especially is the fact that your clinical training is just one component of you. Mm -hmm. Um, Your clinical training brings with it several other skills, both tangible and intangible, that allows you to incorporate those in other domains, in all other life domains. And um, and some of these skills that I'd like to highlight are the fact that you can analyze vast streams of data. You have strong decision-making skills you have the ability to lead, you have the, uh, you have vision. Uh, and then if you're one of those people who are slightly younger than I am, you also have qualitative and quantitative skills, especially mm-hmm. if you're part of the uh, system here in the US that allows you to translate those skills into several other domains, interpersonal skills, communication skills, collaborative skills, analyzing skills, um, advising skills, all of those that you could potentially take it to any other field that you want Uh, while there will be a a learning experience as you're trying to learn about that field in terms of the skill sets i believe that every clinician even someone in an indirect patient care domain like radiology for example has the ability to take all of these and translate it elsewhere that kind of mindset was lacking. When I was in India at that time, my understanding is that things are much better now, but I wouldn't still think they would be at the level that it's possible to do here in the US. No Mm -hmm. question about that. And that's one of the things I like about the US, the fact that you could train and have all of these degrees and all of that in some other totally different domain and Mm -hmm. still be in venture capital, finance, technology, things that I love and I'm interested in. Um, nowhere else I think would I have been able to do some of the things that I have Mm. done and plan to do, no question
0: about that. So you don't regret not going back to India?
1: The only regret if I had would have been the fact that uh, um, originally and from a cultural standpoint I would have been the one and particularly as a physician to take care of my parents in their old age Mm -hmm. Uh, my mom passed away in uh, 2022 October suddenly Uh, she just went to bed yeah Yeah, she just went to bed and never woke up
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and my dad currently is about uh, 89 going on 90 so Mm -hmm. from that standpoint I always think that I was a failure because I was not there uh, when they reached advanced age and Uh, they fundamentally had to be by themselves because we are a a sibling group of four, three of whom are here. Uh, Me and my brother, we are twins. uh, And my two younger sisters are here in California. Mm -hmm. So either my brother or me would have been the one to take care of them. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that my brother was in a different state. He since moved, um, ironically, 10 days before my mother passed away, he moved to the same place that my parents were in, Hmm. to Hyderabad. So my dad now lives with him. Uh, But for a majority of their uh, retirement uh, age, my dad's retirement age, um, they've had to fend for themselves. So that regret will always be there with them. Yeah, I
0: I think that's true for most immigrants, that you can't be in two places at once.
1: (laughs) But yeah, absolutely. You're right. And uh, so a portion of you is always there, mm-hmm. notwithstanding the time zone difference, but from purely from a professional standpoint, no regrets. In fact, I believe that whatever I've been able to do and whatever I potentially I'm going to be able to do in the next hopefully 10, 20 years.
0: Do you think there are aspects of Indian culture that you wish were somewhat more evident here in the US?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of the uh, things, again, in the Indian culture, so whether it's job or marriage um, or career or any of these domains, important life domains, was usually always focused on longevity, Mm
2: -hmm. uh,
1: stability and longevity. That's how it was, at least when I was growing up. Things have changed Mm -hmm. uh, with the influx of cultures from all over the world to India at this point, uh, and multinational companies and people freely moving in and out of India, travel and emigration. But when I was growing up, the main focus was on two things, longevity and stability. You are in with anything, personal or professional, always for the long haul.
0: Right. Uh, And now the problem with that is perhaps that you are going to ignore other innovative things that may come along.
1: Exactly. Exactly. it, It came at a price while there definitely was stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and stability brings with it its own rewards. But they were also on the flip side of it, the um, the unwillingness, so to speak, to take up other interesting opportunities mm-hmm. that came. For example, the taking a very conservative approach and a, a risk-free approach to anything like investing, travel, going overseas, all of those things. That mm-hmm. was basically the mindset at that time. Uh, Since then, I've noticed, especially now when I look at the uh, children of my peers, for example, they've traveled the globe. They've done far more interesting things than what I would have done when I was their age. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, there is an emphasis on trying to be multicultural and be a, a global citizen.
0: Yeah. Do you think some of that is just because communications are so much more open? So they see so much more now.
1: Absolutely, 100%. The fact that internet became available, TV became available. um, Initially, for example, being able to view some of the channels uh, from Mm -hmm. here, TV there, all of that. And then India itself had a a major milestone in 1991 when the economy was opened up. It was called the liberalization of the economy. So Mm -hmm. there was an influx of capital, influx of personnel influx of talent from overseas and an influx also of a lot of expats who are working for multinational companies yeah. in India. All of that, the commingling of the cultures uh, allowed people, for example, from a Western culture to realize that they were things socially and culturally different that they could do. And from the Indian standpoint, exposure to all of this talent, the technology, um, and people and resources, food, name it, allowed them to think that there was another way of life too, that where you could take risk, where you could be an entrepreneur, where you could uh, not necessarily have to have a conservative and a very stable and longevity, longevity-focused approach. Yeah, all of that changed definitely. Yeah, and it was very, it was very helpful because. Uh, the India that you see now is a much more confident, vibrant, multicultural and um, uh, global India from whatever I can mm-hmm. see. No question about that.
0: How often do you get to go back? Uh,
1: in the early years, because of the uh, immigration handicaps, I couldn't uh, travel as much as I would have liked. Right. And then as we were all in different uh, career stages and when we had uh, uh, the sun, I couldn't travel that much. Uh, But now I go back as much as my uh, situation permits. Um, I can't say I go annually. A lot of my colleagues here in India, uh, from India, actually do. Mm -hmm. Uh, For for various reasons, we are not someone who makes that annual (laughs) pilgrimage. All
0: the the Indians I know, it's it's usually connected to somebody's wedding. (laughs) It's very often the reason that people go home. I mean, they... that's likely with a large family that there will be a wedding quite frequently so that they they go at a time that works for lots of different reasons. But obviously, to see family is the main reason.
1: Correct. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's happened for us is three of us siblings are here and my twin brother is the only one who's home in India. Mm-hmm. Um, he, in fact, had uh, um, two offices here in the US, one in California and one in New Jersey because he had a uh, a, a company that did a lot of its work globally Mm. including in in the Middle East and South Africa and so he used to come frequently to the U.S. and then for a portion of time uh, both my parents held green cards too they were sponsored by my sister who came to the U.S. uh, a little earlier than me and came as a student
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: so she got her citizenship much earlier than me and so she was in a position to sponsor them. So they used to spend six months plus of their time here
2: mm-hmm. and six
1: months back home in India. So that was also one of the reasons why I didn't have to go back because they would be here. Mm-hmm. And if three of us were here. They would rotate among the three of us. Um, yeah. and, and, and so I didn't have to do that annual pilgrimage that uh, a, a lot of my peers here
0: do. So. All right. So what else would you like to tell people? I want to, I want to know more about your LLC, your consulting work.
2: and
1: So the advisory and consulting thing I put together because I often had people both personal, at a personal level and at a professional reach out to me over the years for various things. And this is something I didn't um, realize myself. And I'm sure my wife may not completely agree with it. But everybody tends to see me as someone that they could reach out to for advice.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: whether it's their career or or um, anything of a personal nature, one is there's a confidence that they can confide in me uh, without that going viral in some way, number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and number two, because I also like to think that I provide honest feedback. Uh, I'm not someone... Um, who likes a lot of fluff. So I I say it as it is. But even within that, I try to be gentle and accommodating of what people's needs are. And and I do my best in terms of uh, giving them whatever advice it is, whether it's career or or at a personal level. Uh, There is, uh, I don't know, there's probably a misconception that I know a lot, uh, Mm
2: -hmm. which I don't
1: because of what I realize is that There's so much of knowledge out there in so many domains and every day you learn something new. So that's part of one of the things I like about the advising and consulting part, because if I have to advise or consult or give someone some feedback, then I better know what it is that I'm talking about. So I like Mm -hmm. that part of it because it's a daily learning process. And then um, for a number of years, I've done this. I've done this for uh, children of my peers back home in India. Uh, whenever oh, they have... na-
0: how to navigate the system here?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I have several here who reach out to me on WhatsApp, sometimes call, um, especially when they're going through the immigration process, because my immigration story is familiar to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so while they're not all necessarily in healthcare, uh, they're in different industries, the fundamental immigration process in some ways is the same, give or take.
0: Yeah. Like, in case there's any people who are not familiar with it, the system, a lot of Americans truly believe that it's just a question of filling out a form and handing it in with the fee, and then they give you back the visa. It is. There are so many hoops that you have to jump through for so many different reasons and so many setbacks, and they can be really minor. Like <laughs> the last time I had to renew my green card, I was flying back from the UK I, you have to hand in your old one, and they. And if you're going to leave the country, you must have a visa stamped in your passport. So I had asked them, please, and and the woman was sort of annoyed that mm-hmm. I was asking for this. And so she said, and I. I didn't check it. It's just a, it's an old fashioned stamp, and they fill in the blanks by hand. Very old, very old fashioned. I have. I got. I was bemused by the fact that I was flying back from the UK, and I was landing in Toronto in order mm-hmm. to be cleared for American airspace. And I thought, was there a war I didn't hear about? At least this is what happened. I'm in Toronto. <laughs> so I was bemused by that. And the guy said, No, this is out of date. And I said, it can't possibly be. I only got it like two months ago. She'd written January instead of June. And so it was two days out of date. Thankfully, they have computers. So he was nice enough to look it up on the computer. But had he been in a bad mood himself, I could conceivably have been stuck in Toronto for quite a while. It's 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 a very strange and imperfect system. It's, very, it's okay, America, we love you. We're really happy we're here. But it, it can be very, stress, very
1: stressful. You know, the first uh, few years, uh, especially when you're dealing with the immigration thing, and and potentially because of which you have let go some opportunities like I had too, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a lot more taxing for you to be 100% at your place of work or present uh, personally at all these social gatherings and be in a very, uh, what to say, be in a very um, good spirit, so to speak, to be very honest. Um, uh, Because what happens is, and I have my own Toronto story too, by the way, I'll Mm -hmm. share with you. Well, I was in MD Anderson and I think this was 2004. Uh, I was involved with the Society of Neuro-Oncology. Um, And I had been invited for the first time to be a part of their education day committee, which was very uh, prestigious for a young and upcoming faculty like me. And then I was also part of the scientific uh, program advisory committee. So basically uh, someone involved in putting the scientific program together, uh, especially uh, in terms of choosing uh, abstracts and scientific proposals that had a radiology or an imaging background. So it was very prestigious. Um, I am ready to go to Toronto for the meeting. I go to the airport in Houston, the Bush airport in Houston. um, And then I'm about to catch the flight. And then we realize that there's something in my passport that's missing. Some stamp of some sort. I don't Mm -hmm. remember what the stamp was, maybe parole if I'm not mistaken.
0: If you were uh, because, still in process, because you were processing a new visa, yeah.
1: Correct. Yeah. So I don't, I don't remember because it was like almost like 20, 19, 20 years ago, but mm-hmm. I'm there. And so the person at the uh, the airline employee at the desk uh, scans the my passport, like you do the credit card because there's some mm-hmm. digital uh, thing in the passport. And then she tells me, you don't have it. So I said, I don't have what? And then she gave me details of what I didn't have. And then she very also generously said, well, I can't put you on the flight. I said, "Uh, why not? And when she said, this is what you're missing, I asked her, what happens if I take the flight and go to Toronto? Let's say Mm -hmm. I don't listen to you because you're Mm -hmm. not an immigration official and I go. She said, then you will not be able to re-enter back to the US. Mm -hmm. so this was a for me at that time was a a fantastic and potentially a life-changing opportunity because it was a a meeting in toronto and so all of the heavyweights in neuro-oncology from both the u.s and canada would definitely be there and so would many people from all over the world and i had certainly (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah
1: definitely uk Um, In fact, there was a person from UK also that I was going to meet, a person who was a specialist in dynamic susceptibility contrast MRI that I was looking forward to. Uh, I couldn't go. I couldn't go. Uh, I mean, I could take a chance and go and not be able to re-enter, but I couldn't go. And so there was a litany of missed opportunities like that, um, that I couldn't uh, take because of the immigration requirement. Mm -hmm. But... Over the years, I learned um, that when uh, life closes one door on you, someone opens. opens. It may not be the door that you are looking for, uh, but the universe, destiny, and if you believe in God, there's a plan and there's a method to this that we don't understand at that time. Exactly.
0: Just have to figure out what that pivot is.
1: Exactly. (laughs)
2: And,
1: And a lot of times that pivot is made for you, even though you have the illusion that you're the one who's actually yeah. engineering the pivot. I've realized that when I was younger, I didn't have that uh, that wisdom, but now, since I've reached a certain stage, I know that there's a path for you. Um, you have to find it. And, and you have you... to be open
0: to taking it when it presents exactly. itself.
1: Yeah. And these are all paths, um, to go back to your one of your earlier questions, these are all paths that I wouldn't necessarily have taken had I been in India, because I remember in India, I had a very conservative mindset, very um, a de-risk strategy, not willing to try anything new. So if there's one thing that I have to hands down, hand over um, to my experience here in the US, it's the fact that now I'm ready to take all kinds of risks, uh, whether it's advising or consulting or legal risks rather.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so the advising and consulting is one thing that I kind of have been wanting to do formally for a long time. And now that I have a critical mass of, uh, um, uh, I, I I hate to use the word expert because I don't think in my view that anybody's really an expert at anything because the amount.
0: You can have you- expertise in things. Exactly. You 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 may have some. You're an expert amongst the general population. You may not be an expert's expert, but you can be expertise in some areas. You always help somebody else.
1: Yeah, I always feel like that the word expert is used very loosely. In my view, for example, an expert would be somebody like Einstein. Um, But because we have spent a significant portion of time in one domain and have some accumulated experiences, It does definitely give you the opportunity to pass on whatever you have accumulated to others, uh, especially if that's an important moment in their life or a decision-making moment. Um, And you're able to uh, pass on what you've learned to somebody else and help them along with the journey. It's something that I really enjoyed. Yeah.
0: On the topic of being an expert, I was an expert witness for uh, child abuse cases for, for many years. And it always felt really strange to be called an expert witness. But all it means is I knew more about that subject than the trier of fact, as they call it, usually the judge. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't have gone to a a meeting of experts in the field and suggested I was any more expert than anybody else. (laughs) But I did know more than the judge about it. So. What else would you like to tell anybody? We've talked for a long time, even more because of my faux pas earlier with the recording. (laughs)
1: uh, Depending on who the audience of your podcast is and my understanding is a majority would be physicians. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm assuming that there'll be a lot of young and upcoming physicians too. Um, So one of the things that I would like to Um, a couple of things that I'd like to say as take home messages. First thing is realize that as a physician, your clinical training is only one aspect of you as a physician. And what it does is it's a very structured curriculum and a very structured experience. But through that structured experience, what you do is learn how to analyze things, learn how to Um, uh, what I'd say is um, prioritize things, learn how to explore other facets of healthcare. So whether that's policy, whether that's entrepreneurship, whether that's as a startup advisor, uh, whether that's as a mentor, one thing that I'd like to emphasize is think about those things right at the start. The second thing is Medicine is fundamentally a business, even though you have this idealistic view of what medicine is when you begin your baby steps in the field, realize that medicine is a business. And so therefore, confine some of your learning in terms of formal coursework or even informal experiences to getting some idea about business and business foundations. Uh, Make a conscious effort to understand the whole ecosystem outside of your clinical practice in healthcare into who the various stakeholders are and how this whole thing works, whether that's on the patient side of things, on the payer side of things, whether it's insurance, the regulatory aspects of business um, and all of that, pharma, biotech, medtech, diagnostics, try to understand the whole ecosystem. What that does uh, will allow you to broaden your horizons and think of you in terms of being a a, a holistic player in this ecosystem and not just as a clinician. A lot of clinicians get that wisdom I'm seeing post-pandemic, especially, Mm -hmm. and are now looking for roles in um, utilization review, utilization management, and trying to do things at this point. I'm not suggesting that it cannot be done, but it's a little bit of a steep learning curve. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you probably want to do while you're doing all of your clinical work is to devote a portion of your time, energy, and effort to getting up to speed on coursework or formal coursework or informal experiences where you learn all these other aspects. Could be venture capital. It could be any of these other things that I mentioned, writing, for example. So build some time for that portion of your professional development into your schedule right from the start. It could be policy. So spend some time writing, spend some time learning about policy um, and get out there. Uh, Other part of it is when you are a little late to the game, what happens is you have this imposter syndrome because you've never
0: done any of these things. Good old um, imposter syndrome exactly. <laughs> the only yeah. time you were an imposter was when you, that that step from being a student to being yeah. a doctor that and then once you've seen a patient as a doctor you're a doctor
2: <laughs> you've,
0: right. it, it's an ongoing education we can exactly. always learn more but
1: yeah and and then embrace all these modern technologies that are coming make them rather than you being subservient to these technologies, make these technologies a part of your work, your training, so you know how to use them and get there. Recently, I had the, um, um, what to say, the good fortune to listen to a podcast on which one of the top 50 healthcare executives uh, was speaking, and the uh, he was speaking with, uh, I forget the name of this individual, uh, someone who's ri- who's written a book called Beyond the Walls. Uh, basically, the whole premise of uh, this Beyond the Walls says that partnerships, collaboration, and the ability to look beyond your immediate is what we need to all learn.
0: It's, no one, as you yeah. said before, it's integrative. You have you have to. It's no yeah. one thing is the answer. It has to work exactly. together.
1: Exactly. And as clinicians, including me at one point, I, uh, when I was younger and naive, I had the feeling that I was the main player in the system. I have subsequently realized that we are one of many in the system. So while you can do your part, understanding who the other players are and your willingness to work with all of these other players uh, to provide a more holistic approach uh, for the future of healthcare is very important. A future of healthcare is going to involve the home, for example. It's going to involve a lot of digital technologies. And the hospital of the future is one that's going to be where the hospital will be coming to you, wherever your location is. So plan for all of those things. Be open to new challenges, open to new technologies, open to other stakeholders in this pie. Uh, And that's going to stand you in good stead whatever it is that you do in the future. So those are some of my um, uh, take-home messages. Fundamentally, all I'm saying, extend yourself on a daily basis every day. Uh, don't be content with what you're just doing and what is right in front of you. I'm be-
0: pointing out, though, was one of my pet things is self-care too. Don't overextend yourself. <laughs> Get, take exactly. some time. Do some meditation. <laughs> yeah. You know, Take some time for what you need. But don't pigeonhole yourself.
1: Totally, hundred percent, and try to find, and it is feasible to find some work-life uh, balance within all of this too, uh, and be involved in uh, various uh, interesting, stimulating things with a lot of engaging people. But you're absolutely right, Dennis. That um, first, take care of yourself before you can take care of others.
0: Yeah, but but mm-hmm. be ready to take a new path if it's awkward to you because you don't know where to lead.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And and I'm always fond of this other line too. If there's no path there, then you, you be won't. the one to make it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You be the yeah. one to make it.
0: This is great. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to make you come back in another season and talk about all the advances that have happened in radiology because it's been such an explosion in the last 30 years. I mean, it probably was before, but the one I've seen has been in the last 30 years
1: absolutely Dennis. it was my honor and privilege to be a guest on your show it was wonderful chatting with you both online and offline and if there's anything that any of your listeners want i believe i have provided some contact information Their,
0: their contact information for both of us is always for both me yeah. and my guests is always on the show notes yes
2: yeah and they're there.
1: welcome they're welcome to reach out to me at any time as i as i mentioned i am not an expert in anything, because as I, my yardstick for someone being called an expert is Einstein. Uh, But whatever little I know... But you
0: may have seen it before. You'd be happy to talk to them about it. (laughs) Absolutely. That's great. Thank you so
2: much. Thank you, Dennis. Much appreciated. Thank
0: you for joining us at Myth Magic Medicine. If you have found this episode useful, you can apply for free CME credit through the link provided in the transcript. If you're not a medical professional, please remember, while we're physicians, we're not your physicians. So please consult with your own healthcare professional if you think something you have heard might apply to you or a loved one. Until next time, bye-bye.